0: Hi, Will. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jeremy. Nice to be in it. Yeah, really excited to have you because you're an entrepreneur who is really tackling you know, Southeast Asia financial inclusion. And I think you have a strong history, not just in terms of your background, but also in terms of the range of activities you're doing across Southeast Asia. So for those who don't know you yet, could you introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, I'm Willie Arifin, my full name. Came from family business, the generation, since the early age. I'll say I've been groomed to, to be entrepreneurs. We talk about businesses a lot on the dining table, my parents and his families. And I do attend some board meeting even when I was very young, even though I don't know what it is. So I was just running around in the board meeting room and stuff, making noises and stuff. But yeah, I was always close within proximity of uh, the business, I'll say. So I, I grew up, graduated from Michigan, Ann Arbor Came back straight, pulled back to family business, was asked to review the Southeast Asia strategy. Then, you know, I was put in Indonesia to be in charge of the family business there. Well, times fly. That was 2003. And fast forward, 2015, I bumped to my good friends from school, Ben from Michigan. We wanted to do something together. So, we look at a few opportunities and stuff. Yeah, finally we stumble into this data point. That's very interesting. In Indonesia, bank and underbank, there is a eighty billion funding gap, and there's sixty five million SMEs in Indonesia, and that really caught my eyes. So pretty much we stick ourselves in. I told him, you have to be the Batman. I have to be the Robin because I have a family business to, to, to handle. So it's, it's hard for me to commit 100% of my time. So a lot of discussion and negotiation with my families. And finally, at one point, it's the gut feeling that I have that this is something that's going to be huge. So yeah, I decided to jump on board and be committed 110% to this. But yeah, that's that's one of my interesting tech journey, and since CoinWorks started in late 2015 until now, I think we grew from four people to now 650 people. It, it's very different, like how, how you operate a, a traditional business and a tech startup, right? In the traditional business run by the family. Pretty much, I was the almost the youngest one there, Yeah, know, while in the... In the, in the tech startup, I'm pretty much one of the oldest one there. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a big uh, gap and difference. But yeah, because of the gut feeling, I, I took the job. And I think I, well, so far I've made the right move, I feel. Then, you know, not only that, 2018 onwards, I start to be very interested in doing tech investment. So that's the time when me and my wife decided to allocate certain part of our money, our NAS, our cool NAS. To, to invest into founders that willing to use technology to disrupt the industry. So pretty much I want to empower entrepreneurs. I mean I feel this is truly a golden era in Southeast Asia at least you know the past five years and the next five years will be very interesting. And Southeast Asia I believe truly believe will be the next powerhouse yeah
0: amazing. So let's talk about that beginning stage. You said you got to shadow some board meetings and as a kid. What do you remember about that? Nothing.
1: I was just running around, <laughs> drawing things on the board, <laughs> this disturbing the families. You know? so, I mean, you hear things, things they talk about, growth, revenue, profitability. But at that age, when you're just like eight years old, nine years old, <laughs> what do you know about that much, right? All you know is they are talking serious stuff and you just want to catch the attention of your dad. So you're just making noise everywhere. But I think that little things actually creep into your mind. During dinner, and my dad would talk to my mom about it. You you, you listen. You get inputs here and there. But indirectly, you know, it, it just creep into your mind. Now, only when you grow up, you just kind of like remember. Actually, that's something that, you know, we talk about. So now I encourage to talk to my wife too during dinner. Well, my kids is there too, so I think hopefully they'll catch a bit here and there too, and they will be inspired to be entrepreneur themselves for the future.
0: When you talk about business and entrepreneurship in front of your children, how do you feel you get across to them? What do you think they understand, or what do you think they don't understand?
1: Well, my my son uh, is, is is quite interesting actually. I mean, he's is ten years old now. We start to talk about stock trading i give him a, a virtual account and 25000 virtual money so we talk about stock trading I, because me and my wife we, we love to invest we we encourage him like you know hey why don't you try to invest things that you believe on the company so as a children, they know Disney, right? So they will invest in Disney. They know Nike, Apple. They see things that is crowded or things that people use. And he did pretty well, actually. He, he doubles his, his, his 25000 in less than nine months. That was during the last year. But I, I don't know now, man. <laughs> I have to check his, his portfolio. But this is the little things that I, I feel that indirectly you're influencing them for their futures,
0: I think. You went to Michigan, go blue, and so you decided to become a computer engineer. So why did you study computer engineering?
1: i always been very interested in tech stuff. When I'm young, my dad always bought speakers and stuff, DVDs, AV, and then Blu-ray and stuff. So for me, you know, he, he asked me to kind of install it, right? So I'm like sticking all the cables here, trying all the different speakers configuration and stuff. So, so that got me into electronics. And then he got me a computer then which is running like Lotus and stuff it intrigued me so I thought I'm, I'm given the opportunity to choose you know some parents are pretty strict like you have to go for this direction I, I was given the freedom right so my interest then was you know what makes software ticks, right so very strangely actually I do I, I make games so that's what I learned in school. So I, my, my final project, actually, I make a fighting game. It's like Tekken or Street Fighter, that kind. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's weird. <laughs>
0: Amazing. From there, of course, what's interesting is that you didn't really go into an engineering job after that, right? Uh, you decided to pursue more of a business role eventually. So how was yes. that transition between you know your major versus your career? Yeah,
1: yeah it, it's a big gap, but I wanted to go into you know, I applied to actually IBM then, right? Uh, got accepted too, but my parents, like, no. You going back to family business <laughs> straight, so you know I was thrown there, and you know, I shadow my dad. I was moved around department and department and learn by swimming. So that's that's always the, the the way, right? You know, they just throw you down and you have to figure out how to swim. The good thing is, I what I feel, you know, software engineers learns about logic one zero one zero. You know, a lot of things are logic, so I, I use that to implement to the family business. Of course, there's some frictions and feedbacks. You know, family business. It's always, there's a little bit more drama than just pure business, but you get to learn the loops, right? I mean, I was there for almost, what, 12, 15 years? Yeah. So, yeah, but my dad is also a good teacher, I guess.
0: Why was he a good teacher? <sighs> that's
1: interesting. I mean, my dad doesn't really tell you what to do. He kind of gives the freedom. I think that's what you need when you're young, because if you are being told what to do, then you, you are just someone executing, but... If you're not told what to do, you have the freedom to do whatever you want to do, right? So you can experiment and, and test a lot more things, right? So I think that's makes me become very experimental. And I think this bores well for my startup to a lot of MVPs has to be done. Quick to the market, you know, try, test it, test it, you know, see it works or not. You know. it, it doesn't give you fear, right? It gives you feels like, you know, you, you are there to challenge the world kind of feeling. Yeah.
0: What's interesting is that you went through this transition at the family business and then eventually built out a new venture, right? So talk us through how that transition happened. Wow, oh, that,
1: yeah, that that's the super interesting one. right? Like I mentioned, my co-founder, He's the Batman. I'm the Robin when we start. I can't give my, my time, so I have to kind of row two boats. So it, it took me almost three years to transition out to negotiate with my families. And you know, finally, I'm 100% in, in my daily job in there. But still, I have to attend the board meeting and strategy meeting sometimes quarterly with my family. But the, the transition period was pretty, I would say, pretty smooth because it, it was well planned both me and my co-founders at the beginning my co-founder Ben he he is pretty much running day-to-day jobs firefighting every day so I was handling like the finance and accounting then you know once we get the, the senior people of the finance and accounting I start to like you have the general stairs to, to kind of monitor it. You just need to advise there, right? Then I went to the marketing side. Then, s- same case, uh, we slowly build the marketing side. And once we have a general stairs too, then I start to start, put my foot off a bit from the gas. Then my last role was in uh, product. I-, I love product. I'm someone that always challenge, and I always believe that innovation is something that has to be built in the company DNA. Without innovation, you are just ready to be disrupted. Even a tech startup that disrupts the industry can be disrupted too, right? So you you need to keep innovating. So that's something that we we truly believe in, in in Coinworks. So finally, we promote our VPO product to be a CPO. Then, you know, I, I took my foot off too. Now I'm more investor relationships, fundraising, you know, small strategies now yeah product is still close to my heart so you know innovation lab is something that I love to do so it's still something I, I love continue to do too
0: so what do you find is the difference between the new venture and the family business you know you started hinting at it a little bit so tell us what's the culture difference what's your personal difference how do you do things differently oh
1: man it's, it's so different. I mean, one is the age group, the way how people see you, right? So in the family business, they see you very differently from a, a, a how the employees see you in the tech startup. In the tech startup, well, for, luckily for those we hire, they give like 110% and they are on fire. They needs they, they want to challenge the, the market. Well, well, in the traditional business, it was more like, oh, this is what you told me to do. I'll just do it. Then they don't question it, right? Since a lot of the people are more older, right, I would say, because it was my dad's era. I would say they are kind of settled already. It's, it's hard to see the fire in them. So they, they just want nine to five job kind of thing. Yeah. I, I call that the settling age. And that's something that I think uh, the, the big difference, the culture.
0: Yeah. How has your own personal routine or work style changed as a result of this transition as well?
1: Oh, wow. It's a lot. This is why I tell all my fellow founders. I always believe in a philosophy that you can't do too many things at the same time. The thesis that I always use, right, is: yeah, in life, you have four burners, you have your career, your family, your social, and your health. So, at some point in time, you have to make a decision: how many burners do you want to burn? If you burn four of it at the same time, you'll be just a small fire. You won't get anywhere in your career you won't get anywhere in your social life too and stuff. So at different stage of my life, I, I choose to burn two only, some three. So I, I do sacrifice certain things, but that's the life of a founder, so I'll say. Yeah, you have to sacrifice. You, you can't be 24-7 everywhere, right? And I, and I know all founders have health issues, actually, especially the early stage founders, right? I mean, they put their heart, their sweat, you know, their blood in, in, into making things work, right? The first three years of the startup, I'll say that's the fragile stage, and that is the part where I think if the founders are not putting everything in, that's not the right founders.
0: That's really interesting. I love the four burners analogy. What advice do you normally give, or how do you think about people should be switching them on or off or prioritizing? Yeah,
1: I, everyone has a different needs. For me, you know, when, when I started CoinWorks, I understand that you know I have to roll two boats, both my family business and CoinWorks. So career. And family was my my, my choice. The other two, pretty much, I I was switched off. I think during that two years, most of my friends are like, where's Will, man? (laughs) He (laughs) disappeared. Where's he? (laughs) Yeah. And then my health also. Wow, man. I I tell you, I was gaining weight. I've girt. Wow. It's, It's just insane because you are eating irregularly, you know, and you are in constant stress and challenging yourself all the time. So, yeah. That. Is really a hard time for me. I mean, in terms of health-wise, that was very, very challenging. And there's a time I, I remember vividly that I have to pitch to investors, and I have a GERD attack the day before. Right? So the next day, you know, the mood wasn't right, the feeling wasn't right, and you still have to make it happen because investors like this is the time. You know, I have to talk to you. It's, it's not like, oh, let's reschedule. So yeah, I think my advice is choose wisely the, the four burners, when to burn, when to kind of scale some of it and to turn off some of it.
0: As you think about these four burners, how have you been able to prioritize? Are there any hacks to make it easier to have three burners or four burners? Because nobody wants to do one or two burners, right? Everybody wants to be all four, right? So. Yeah,
1: so I mean, if you don't have a family, you're not married with kids, right? I think family will will most likely be your, your parents. That that's easier to manage. But if you have your your wife and your kids, then it's, it's a bit different. There's uh, attention required and constant high touch, you know, with your kids. Else, you know, you you'll be considered like, you're not there for their birthday. <laughs> you're not there every time. Even physically, you're there. Mentally, you're not there. That it, it doesn't feel right, too, right? So, uh, I think that the hack for this is not saying not to get married, but do your entrepreneurs earlier. <laughs> I think that makes life easier, I think. <laughs>
0: What's interesting is that now you've also not only been the executive of you know, Coinworks, but also starting to angel invest and uh, do that as well. So what do you see in the founders today?
1: In honestly, founders are getting more complicated, I'll say. Yeah, Their expectations are very different from the, the, the era where me and Ben started. I think uh, that era when we first started, or you, you can talk to Nadim too about this to verify, there's not that many VCs around. So probably you can count early stage VCs in Indonesia or Southeast Asia by your fingers only pretty much. But now, you know, this flooded. Everyone is going early stage. So it's actually definitely is the right time to be a founder right now. If anyone, your audience wants, you know, having doubt to be a founder, I tell you, the money is everywhere. <laughs> this is the golden era of, of a tech startup in, in Southeast Asia. So hence the reason why I jump into this investment, right? I think the previous five years and the next five years, we'll see a lot of uh, disruption to the traditional business. And we'll see a lot of very successful, nice, great stories of founders
0: You've been you know, a founder and now you're an angel. What's it like to be on both sides of the table? Do you give them advice? Do you feel like you can help them run the business better? How does that happen?
1: The strange thing is that there's a couple of things why founders want me in the cap table. One, of course, is my, my network. Two, of course, is my experience. I think the lastly that I think a lot of founders might not realize is someone to be there, right? Someone when they get confused that, hey, this is what happened to me too, you know, to, you know, a tap in the shoulder kind of thing. Like, I've been there too. So no, no worry about it, you know. Just, we, we just need to figure out. So the, the mental part actually is a, is a key component too, actually. And the the good thing is I swept and bleed on it before, right? So it, it's more authentic for me to to kind of tell them about it
0: making it authentic to tell them about it, do founders listen? <laughs> because, you know, when I was a founder, some angels I listened to, some angels I did not, right? So, I'm just kind of curious how you think about it.
1: You know? Yeah, I mean, uh, founders has a lot of angels. I mean, right now, you know, when you see the cap table or uh, the early stage startup, right? Whoa, they have like 20 angels and you, you can pretty much see who's the name in there, right? So I think there's angels that the founders need, the angel for certain purpose. So I think if they can optimize each angels for each specific needs and listen to what advice is given, you know, not all advice given will be 100% correct. And it might not be at the right time too. It might not be at the right industries too and stuff. But I'll say founders, you have your time is precious, right? So... Definitely, you have to pick and choose, right? And advice given is not 100% correct, yeah.
0: How would you advise founders to differentiate between good advice or bad advice? Or so advice that should be taken and advice that should be put aside?
1: They have to listen to a, a few more advice, right? So, if you, you can't take uh, one source of truth, so. I always tell founders that uh, it's good to have multiple angels to listen to and it's good to listen to the board too. Everyone has different inputs. And in the end, they have to digest it and speed up the output themselves versus, you know, oh yeah, uh, this is what the advisors say. I'll just go along with it. The founders, intellectually, they have to be up there too, right? To absorb and to filter the noise and to speed up the output.
0: For yourself, has there been advice that you said, yeah, not so interesting versus <laughs> advice that you find you know, more relevant.
1: Well, I, I think we always have that, that, that scenario, right? Because sometimes advisors, when you tap into them, they only know at that point of time, right? But historically, sometimes you need to have the whole context too, right? Sometimes. So yeah, I, I'll say I went through that stage too. And definitely me and my co-founder, we, we have to digest a lot. And, and speed out the right output. There, yeah. hopefully, we will speed out the right output all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because you've recently raised, you know, a, a lot of capital as you kind of hit the scaling phase. Not just equity, but also in terms of uh, debt as well. So. Could you share a little bit more about the different stages, right? Between the founding, the early stages, and now, you know, you're starting to raise a lot of capital. What has that experience been in terms of the change in company growth?
1: That's the part being a founder. I think that's the beauty of being a founder. And you have to constantly evolve. I think early stage founders, you know, it's good to build a culture where you are hands on, where you, you get your hands dirty all the time. And you're looking at every single details and stuff. But you can do that when you have 25, 30 people, right? You know, when your company are still figuring out. Once you have proved your MVP and you need to step on the gas or the, the growth side, then it's, it's a bit different. You, you need your generals there to help you. That's when you have like 200, 300 people. You can't be making decisions every single time. Then pretty much you, you don't have time for yourself, you know, to re-energize yourself. You need to evolve as a founder going through that different stages and understanding when to step back and when to uh, step in. At our stage, right, I think it's such a key component that we empower our generals to, to to be able to make key decisions and the right decision all the time, right? Sometimes there's doubts we have to make the call too, right? Yeah. I think that's, that's the, I'll say the different stages, importance of how our founders need to evolve themselves.
0: How do you make the call when there are doubts? Like what helps you make one decision versus the other decision?
1: Specifically for me, the, some founders require like 90% data points to make a decision. For me, I think 70% will, will do because by waiting for 90% data point or even some very conservative founders who go as far as like 100%, 99.9%, it will be too slow, I feel. But certain decisions require that accuracy of data points. I think that's something that the founders need to, to figure out, which industry they are in, you know, how sensitive in the decision on, on that thing. But for me, I, I like to make quick decision. but of course, I need to have the right data point too. And for me, I feel a 70% data point with my gut instinct, I like to make that call. Yeah, versus waiting for another week for data point and stuff.
0: With that 70% information, how do you make decision A versus decision B? Do you, like, Talk to friends, advisors, family. How do you have that debate?
1: Yeah. This is called corporate governance, too, right? As the founders, now you have board to answer, too, right? So on certain big call, when in doubt, I think the first, first few people you have to dial is your board. I think that's uh, a good uh, structure, right, Of doing things the correct way. Friends and families, I mean, they might have the industry's experts sometimes, but it's for you to to ask advice. But the board is is more a collateralized decision- making I'll say
0: yeah what's interesting is that you know you're making all these decisions at a very fast growth rate you know over the past six years you're also working with SMEs in Indonesia and historically you know that's always been a tricky sector to work with in terms of non-performing loans in terms of information is there how have you gone about thinking about that
1: yeah I guess that's where my key learning point too, right uh, underwriting for Unbank and right? SMEs, influencers, content creators and stuff, freelancers. It's very different from underwriting a commercial size company or corporate size company where their financial statement is pretty clear, right? Like, you don't have to reconstruct the financial statement that much. Uh, SMEs the, the, is, is the founders too, right? They are the founders. They are a business that has less than 20, 30 people, right? The dependency on the legitimacy and the, the strength of the founders become a key component, the challenge is sometimes you meet a founder who is not legit, kind of sense or the, the SMEs, they are just there just a hobbies. What we want to see is you know uh, SMEs or you know who is treating this as a, their life is something they really want to do or at least you know this is a side hustler for them. Right? For those who is not really serious, then yeah, there's there's always a challenge there.
0: And how have you been able to get your non-performing loan percentage lower than average? Because that's a Big set of decisions, right? I mean, it's like, you know, as an underwriter, you probably have less than 70% information than you do. <laughs> and then you yourself are making 70% decision on that. So how do you get better and better over time? Yeah,
1: yeah I think that's through experience. I think once you sharpen your tools, your senses become more attuned to it. Talking about MPL, the, the right way to put it, MPL is just uh, one matrix the, to measure the portfolio quality. Some startup or some, some lending company will, will pre their pricing to adjust on the MPL. I think the, the conversation should be NIM, net interest margin. So a company might have a slightly higher MPL, not saying we are uh, Coinworks are, but it might be super profitable. To, to put it this way, you have an MPL of 1%, but the company is not profitable. It means you are not taking enough risk. But then a company that has an MPL of 3% and then it's super profitable, then do you say that this guy 3% is wrong? I think it's how you price it against your risk, mar- the market that you are hitting.
0: Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And I think that's uh, something that most people don't really understand, which is that at the end, there's a trade-off between these two factors. Yes. I think what's interesting is that there's also a good strategic choice but which of these to prioritize in certain times to focus more on the net interest margin, sometimes on the NPL side. Mm -hmm. How would you advise fintech companies, right? Because there's so many of them that are doing some kind of lending out there nowadays, right? Mm. How would you advise them to be thinking about the fintech space or the strategy they should be thinking about?
1: Well, I mean, everyone talks about nuclear winter. So all investors are looking at profitability, right? So my single advice for those who is doing credit is do not subsidize interest rate. <laughs> that's a rabbit hole, man. <laughs> I mean, I know some peers, you know, are doing that. I think that's not healthy. If someone has, I mean, if you say someone is risky, you should price it according to their risk, right? Not saying that you price it according to their risk and you're giving them discount. Then sooner or later, you're just going to you know, shoot yourself on the foot,
0: I'll say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's interesting because there's so many people come going to Indonesia because you know there's a huge SME growth story mm-hmm. about them as a backbone of the economy, the long-term macro trends. But also, I think, facing the difficulty of just not having enough information or credit history um, to really make that decision as well. How should people think about the Indonesia SME versus fintech approach? Is that something that, I know you're obviously all two thumbs up for it, but I'm just wondering how people should be thinking about it? SME
1: always has a data point, but it's just a matter of where, right? I think a lot of the offline SMEs, the data point is not available online or is not available in the internet or in the digital world. For those who is online, actually, they have a lot of data points. It's just how we harness that data point to underwrite them. And of course, a business that is commercial size, like I said, you can construct the financial statement more clearly versus someone who is underbanked and unbanked. The way you have to see it is the risk profile. With this amount of data point, what kind of pricing you should put on it versus someone who has a complete data point, what kind of pricing you should put on it. So I think in the end of the day, it's the price risk factors. Indonesian SMEs, yes, some SMEs way to the bottom of the chain has really no data points at all. And that's the part where you have to price it accordingly, right? You, you can't say that a farmer who is dealing with cash basis and stuff and you, you are giving him a, a attractive interest rate, right? Then it's wrong. But then there's a lot of now all these ugly taxes popping out everywhere There is empowering these farmers or these fishermen, right? Then you have additional data point and that's when you can price it even better, right? So I think data is the key here, I think.
0: And what's interesting, of course, is that you also uh, talk about financial inclusion, right? For those who don't really understand this, I think I have a hint of where you're going with this, but how does providing loans to SMEs lead to more financial inclusion? Like, what is the social value or impact of, you know, lending to the underbank and unbanked?
1: Okay, we, we can use analogies, right? If someone doesn't have a internet access, he will be fall behind because he, he can't educate himself through reading in the internet or you know, uh, getting video contents and stuff. That's why internet access becomes a key point in our life nowadays, right? So financial inclusion is the bread and butter of SMEs too. Imagine SMEs who only can get loans from Loan shark. Pretty much they are doomed. Their interest rate is 50%. And that is not a year, that is like by month. So having a financial inclusion for this, we give them access of credit at the right price for them. It will change their business. We have a statistic in Coinworks. Hmm. If they take a loan with us, a productive loan with us, within six months, their sales will increase by 60%.
0: Wow, that's powerful. And that sixty percent helps them, you know, pay employees better, pay themselves, feed their families, yes. work their suppliers better. Amazing. As you think about all of this, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? Oh,
1: I think the biggest brave decision I made was to jump from the family business to run CoinWorks. <laughs> I think that 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 takes a lot of. I mean, not only negotiation, but I think it's a big decision. It changed my life too, in honesty. Looking back, I think it's quite crazy. So, I mean, some of the phrases that I remember was like, how can you do lending without looking at someone? (laughs) Right? And then you want to run that business? Like, yeah. (laughs) You know, so that gut feeling, you know, is really that sixth sense that makes me took the jump. Like, this is the one, man. The data shows that there's a big market there and this is the one I need to tackle. I need to empower people here. This is where I'm going to change my life and people's lives too. That was the the most, I'll say, bravest time ever. Of course, besides taking the decision to marry my wife, right? I think that's another brave decision, I'll say.
0: <laughs> that's interesting, right? Because was your wife already there when you made the decision to uh, transition from the family business to founder?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's a collective decision, of course. Mm.
0: And how was that collective decision, right? Because I think there are so many founders out there and they, they're trying to make a decision to transition from an employee job or an executive to become a founder. And then they have a wife, maybe they have children. So do you have any advice or memories about how you reached that collective decision?
1: <sighs> I think uh, it, it's good to sit down and, and talk and, and run the numbers. Everyone has a different pocket. Everyone has a different pocket. So it's it's not easy to, to kind of uh, generalize things. But it, it's good to run the numbers because being a founder, you know the statistic too. Maybe out of 100 startups, only less than 10 will make it. But the the earlier you do it, I, I always truly believe that the more chances you can fail, but the more chances you have to succeed too. I started Coinworks, I think, in mean, honestly, I feel it's a bit at the later stage. I should have done it like when I'm in the late 20s instead of mid 30s, right?
0: I mean, that's also something that always people think about, right? Is that should they wait longer and get more experience before they set up a business versus starting earlier? Sounds like you're very much more earlier. You're very much more in favor of going out earlier.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, of course. I think experience can be gained during learning. But of course, you know, if you have more experience, chances of success is higher. But it's not that much higher, actually. <laughs>
0: Yeah. If you could go back in time, all the way back to your senior year, right, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> in uh, you know, Michigan, right, uh, uh, Ann Arbor, what advice would you give yourself uh, back then as a senior?
1: Wow, network as much as you can. I think as you grow older and as you build your startup, the power of network, the people that can open the doors for you is much more important.
0: How do you advise people to go about networking? Because, you know, so many folks there are, I mean, obviously, once you're a certain executive, you you know, you're kind of very comfortable with networking. But there's so many people who are not comfortable with networking or they're relatively more junior. How did you get comfortable with networking?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a really introvert guy. I'm an engineer introvert. You know, typically uh, what kind of character I am if I go clubbing last night, I'll be sitting in the corner there you know, playing with my phones, <laughs> sitting down there. Yeah, I think everyone has to get into their comfort level. So I think networking is also a, a kind of a, a life process too, right? I don't think you can live your life just be yourself. I mean, alone, cocoon in the corner and stuff. So you need to be able to network with your families, with your friends, your kids too. You need to be able to network with them. So the sooner you learn about it, the, the better it is, I, I feel too. But Different people has different pace. I think it's great that to start early in school, when you fail, it doesn't feel bad. When you fail in the real world, in your founders, then the effect is greater. Yeah. So school is always a good time to experiment a lot of things,
0: yeah. Oh, I love that so much. On that note, I'd love to wrap things up by kind of sharing the three big messages that I, you know I got from this sharing. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about your own personal journey from computer science graduate to family business and listening to the board meetings, and like you said, not knowing what's going on, to helping out at the family business from department to department, and eventually choosing to be a founder yourself. So that was a really interesting, I think, trajectory that really um, feels familiar, especially in Southeast Asia, because I think there are so many people who are obliged or have responsibilities to the family. So I think it was really nice to hear you share about that experience. The second, of course, is thank you so much for the technical dive, actually, into fintech and risk and reward. I think about the net interest margins, the non-performing loans, but also I think what the impact is about helping SMEs in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. So really amazing to hear that ripple effect of what you're building over time. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing about the four burners, uh, about family, social, health, and career. Really interesting to hear that analogy and metaphor about how founders and folks should be thinking about what they can switch on, switch off, do more, do less. And also hearing a little bit about your own personal struggles in the early stages, for example, around your health. To focus on your career versus later on, now that you've been able to prioritize a little bit more of your family and career as well. So, thank you so much for sharing all that you've shared. Thanks, Jeremy. Really enjoy talking with you here. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.